All right. Well, I think I think we'll I think we'll get the festivities started. Um, I'm very happy to see a, a crowd full of, of many familiar faces, and, and I'm sure I'll, among those that aren't so familiar, a, a bunch of other interesting folks here to talk about a question that's always of great interest to translators: publishing. Um, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go on for very long. I'm gonna you know introduce my panel and get started. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I, my name is David Kornacker. I translate from the French, but I also used to run a thing called the French Publishers Agency. And while I was there, I was selling translation rights, selling language rights, to American publishers for, for books to be translated into English, published here. And that's how I got to know a lot of editors. Um, so I ended up being something of a go-between between editors and translators, among other things. My job was to be a go-between between French publishers and American publishers, but as a translator, I sort of expanded the job a little bit and got pretty familiar with the issues that, that run between translators and publishers. Um, this evening, I have entitled Making Translations Work, Publishers' Perspectives. Um, my effort with this title is to encourage these people to accentuate the positive, which is not easy when you get publishers talking about translations. They tend to want to talk about how hard they are to do, how many things can go wrong. I have tried to convince my, my fellow panelists that we translators are fairly aware of, of many of the things that can go wrong and always remain curious about, well, if it's so difficult, why do you keep doing it, and what do you do? And that's the, the subtitle here, a panel discussion of what, why, and how translations are published by, it's a terrible sentence that I would never allow in any of my own translations, by large commercial, small independent, and university presses. And these are sort of the big three types of presses here in the United States. And we have representatives of all three, and then one person who at least somewhat falls in between the cracks because she's the associate publisher of a small imprint but of a large press, and I don't know what that makes her. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my panelists and let them address this, this, this charge that I have given to. Um, on my left is Tim Bent, who is a senior editor at Arcade Publishing. Um, while there, he's acquired numerous works for publication in English translation. He's also done some translating himself from the French, uh, most recently Henry Miller, The Paris Years, by Brassailles. Um, among his recent acquisitions for translation, he's particularly excited about, this is your cue, um, <laughs> about the internationally acclaimed Cuban novel, Yocandra in the Paradise of Nada, by Zoe Valdez. Um, next to Tim is Sarah Burstell. Translated by. Translated by. <laughs> oh, it doesn't say. It's a secret. <laughs> Perhaps an issue that Tim will discuss. The, the, the secret translator. Um, sitting next to Tim is Sarah Bristel, who is associate publisher of Metropolitan Books, a new imprint of Henry Holt, whose mission is to publish a wide spectrum of important books, both domestic and translated. Metropolitan, uh, the Metropole. She is publishing translations by the likes, in the course of her career, the likes of Peter Schneider, Ida Fink, Svetan Todorov, Tom Segev, and Emmanuel Carrere. And she's been here, there, and everywhere. She's been at St. Martin's, she's been at Pantheon, she's been at Farrar Strauss, and now and she's who knows where I'll be tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> a happy home at Metropolitan. 
Next to her is Robert Driesen, who's a senior editor at Viking Penguin. His interest in publishing translations uh, was developed while working with former Penguin CEO Peter Mayer on translations of books such as The Discovery of Heaven by Harry Mulish, Literature and Life by Jorge Samprun, and Einstein by Albrecht Folsing. He continues to see literature and nonfiction as translation as vital to his editorial work, and he'll tell us a little bit about why. And finally, on my, not finally, but on my far right, is, you see, I forget the translator. This is, on my far right is Willis Regeer, who's the director of the Johns Hopkins University Press, where he publishes translations on a wide range of subjects. Prior to being at Hopkins, he was director of the University of Nebraska Press, where he not only published nonfiction translations, as many university presses do, but also developed a, a very wide-ranging program of fiction uh, translation publishing. And uh, perhaps we can convince him to talk a little bit about that as well as about his current endeavors. And finally, to respond to all of these folks, to these four editorial people, uh, seated at my right is Carol Volk, a translator from the French whose many credits include novels by Patrick Chamoiseau, Tar Benjaloun, and Emmanuel Bove, essays, essays by Eric Romer and Luc Ferry, and scholarly nonfiction ranging from the history of youth to a recently published book by Columbia University Press called The Singular Beast, Jews, Christians, and the Pig, which is really quite a fascinating, <laughs> quite a fascinating book <laughs> that the Bureau du Livre sold. Um, these many varied... These many and varied projects have brought her in contact with small presses, large commercial houses, and major university presses. So she's a translator who's dealing with these folks, folks like these folks all the time from the translator side. And with that, I will, I will hand the, the, the parole to Tim Bent to tell us a little bit about the translations he's doing at Arcade. Well, thanks, David. <clears throat> Welcome. Uh, I, I, we don't have to be negative about translations. I think people do translations because they love the language in which the original is written. And I, speaking for myself, the reason why I look at books in foreign languages is because having speaking one fairly well, I'm attracted to it. And I think that's probably every editor who works on foreign works or projects, especially fiction, which is always a labor of love, no matter what you're doing. Um, it's because you have some connection to that culture, some reason to feel as if you can judge and, and, uh, and want to spread it in, in the United States, some reason to sort of bring in a missionary zeal. Um, I work for a small independent house, which frees me up a little bit, I think, because we can take risks that some of the larger houses simply cannot take or are not allowed to take. I also happen to work for um, two publishers, one of whom is French and the other is a long-standing and deeply respected translator from French. So the, the house itself is geared, if you like, towards looking at what's happening in France and, by extension, what's happening in other parts of Europe. That's a limitation, I should say. I mean, one thing we should talk about tonight is when we say translation, we normally assume French, German, Italian, Spanish, but actually the most interesting and more exciting parts of translation are occurring in languages with which I have no familiarity and nobody at this table has any familiarity. Um, so it's a sense of uh, devotion to that culture. That's where you start, it seems to me. Um, I acquire French titles because I can read them. It's very simple. I don't have to rely on someone's opinion. I can read it and decide if this is something I want to do. Finding a translator and getting it out into the world, this is a whole process that you start, but at least you begin with a sort of leap of faith that you believe in this, in this project, in this book. Um, so that's the main reason. If it's nonfiction, 
then there are all kinds of marketing reasons why you can do a translation. If there's no biography on Albert Einstein and suddenly a German publishing house produces one and you can't read it, it doesn't matter, you think, well, there's nothing out there, this would be a good project to do because of that. In other words, there's a marketing angle that you can use for nonfiction, a way in which you can make it fit or you can justify it uh, by, by that alone. Um, but it is translating, uh, I have utmost respect for translators, having dabbled myself. Uh, it is not an easy process. It is, uh, it is a co-creation. Uh, I have great respect uh, for what they do and how they do it. Um, looking at things from the editorial end, I also know that there can be a pain in the ass because uh, very often the translator is not a writer. And ultimately, translation should be done by a writer, not a translator. You want a writer who can translate, is what you want. And very often what you have is a literal translation, which in the case of fiction can be killing, absolutely killing. So getting the book out, getting it to work, and there's a whole process that begins. Um, and all of us have horror stories. I've got also you know, successes. I think all of us also feel that there are reasons we do it, even commercial reasons that we do it. Um, a smaller house like mine can do it because very often we can get books uh, for less, uh, than um, if we try to go to big agents for American projects. Uh, I cannot offer big advances. And so therefore, very often, if there's a German book or an Italian book or a French book that I'm sure will work, um, chances are that Simon Schuster is not looking at it or that uh, it's not being represented by some big-name agent. The chances are it's accessible, it's attainable. And that's a major attraction from my perspective is that very often I can acquire it. Um, and what else? What else to say? I mean, um, it's, it's true that translations, when they appear in this country, tend to be blocked together as literary, regardless of whether or not they're literary. It may be very commercial. As soon as you have on the title page translated from the German or the French or the Spanish or the Swahili, the American market, the American bookseller, tends to look upon it as a literary work. And that just means that your numbers are going to be very low. Just You start with that. You're going, going against the grain uh, because literary works, however you want to define that, and I'm, I would not want to be hard-pressed to define that, um, are not being read as the way they used to. I think that's, there seems to be less interest, in fact. Um, so that's a problem from the beginning is that in the market, the translation is seen automatically as literary. You have to convince accounts bookstores, your reps, the people that I have to be, I present my books to to get them excited about it, that no, this is accessible. Sure, it's translated, but it's just as good as the original. Um, and that's not easy because they know very well that uh, uh, it's not going to get necessarily the review attention it might get. It's, you don't have an author to flog. I can't bring over my French authors or German authors very often because they can't read. I mean, of course they can read. <laughs> but they can't read from their works. They can't, they can't be there as a kind of a presence. And for the American market, that's very important that you have this live beast to present. Uh, it, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever heard somebody who's actually read from their translated work here. It's really painful because they're discovering the text for the first time as they go along <laughs> and mispronouncing words. And you're, oh, God. Um, you know, so it's, there are all these strikes against translation and translated works. Um, the lack of a, of a live body being one, this literary quality uh, being the other. Um, even reviews, as I said, 
I think that American reviewers are by and large more interested in what's closer to home, what they recognize, authors that have particular American locations that you can put into a context, than being told that so-and-so is a great German intellectual who should be read by everybody. That just feels foreign and too far away. Um, I think that's, I'll stop there. Why embarrass right. anybody? All right. Imagine. Well, let me, con continuing in alphabetical order, let me move on to Sarah <laughs> Um, well, I'll, I'll just add a few things to what, to what Tim said. Um, I think from my point of view, I do translations, and I've always done them wherever I've worked, as a way of, of broadening the conversation, you know, as a way of bringing voices in that are not American or, or that are, and that can come from all over, but who are talking about things that, you know, that um, either are interesting to us or that I think should be interesting to us. And I think that's the particular freedom and wonderfulness of being an editor or publisher is that you can actually make some decisions about what should be heard in your culture, you know, and that that applies to things here, but also obviously to things there. Um, uh, so, so this, I think, would be my reason for doing it. I think like Tim and like everyone else you'll hear tonight, um, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. The, the economics of translation, of the economics of publishing, really don't have a slot for translation. It's just an added expense. You know, there's, there's no way of, of amortizing it or doing anything with it. And if you add to that the considerable work that translation involves, and there are several of you here who've been through the trenches with me, so I know that, you know, we know exactly what this means because, as, as Tim said, the... The interesting thing is to get a writer who can translate, because this is what people who don't do translations never understand, and this applies also to our colleagues in publishing who think, oh, well, you have it easy. You know, this book has come out. It's been a great success in Germany or France, and here you are. All you have to do is get it translated without understanding, you know, not only the, the, the accuracy that's involved, but also the, the beauty that needs to somehow get put into this by a translator who can't, by definition, have the same stake in it as an original author did and who is not getting paid enough and who, I mean, you know all these, you know all these things. So that it's, you know, it's a thankless task, I think, for translators. It's also a fairly thankless task for editors. And so if you do it, you have to really, you have to really believe that there's value in getting these voices heard. Um, I think another interesting thing that you notice if you if you deal in translations is you you start learning things about your own culture. For example, years ago it was pretty clear that history could I mean that our our country was permeable to historians from elsewhere. You know, so the whole French Annal school every time they wrote a book, no matter on what you know, marriage ceremonies in 12th century village in France, this was we were eager for it and we were open to it. And there was a tremendous number of, of books like that that were published. But there are fields, other fields, to which we are completely closed. You know, except for Lacan, I don't think any book in psychoanalysis can be translated into, into English from French, for example. So you learn, you learn your way. You understand what we're willing to accept, what we're not willing to accept. And that's interesting as well. I think the distinctions between dealing in, with nonfiction and fiction are also very important. With nonfiction, you can do all kinds of um, matchmaking. With fiction, you have, to, you have to be very careful because if the voice doesn't come through in the translation, then you really don't have anything. You don't have anything to, to work with. You can always supply the details and 
the accurate rendition, but you can never you can never put in the voice unless unless you're a writer. Um, I would also say, and I'm I'm just jumping around trying to pick up on things that Tim said that. I think it is essential to start opening up to, to cultures other than the European. And what that means for, for those of us who don't know these languages is you know, beginning, to tra- beginning to publish things that we've never read. And this is, this is a risky business, but, but you have to do it. And in, in my case, I decided to publish a novel, an Israeli novel, because first I said no, saying I can't read it, can't understand Hebrew, I can't publish this. Then I got a letter from Anton Shamas, a letter from Edward Said, a letter from David Grossman, and a letter from Yoshua saying you should publish this book. And I thought, well, if these people who can't agree on anything can agree on this, <laughs> I'll do it. So, so, you know, I think we are having to take more chances that way, you know, with Chinese novels, with Polish works, with, um, with things from, from Indonesia that we, you know, that we must do and we must be open to that. Okay. Well, with Penguin, um, my reasons for uh, being interested in translations is twofold. One, having more to do with, uh, or more on an institutional level, and the other on a more personal level. The first one is that um, Penguin has a strong tradition of publishing uh, literature in translation and nonfiction in translation. simply that we publish the Penguin Classics, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. We are um, continually uh, revisiting these classics, uh, always looking for uh, a better text, uh, which lends itself to the times with respect to course adoption, say, our our 20th century classics, more modern uh, classics. We're always looking for translators um, with these respective works. Already there's a sort of foundation there that at least provides, I'll say, um, a receptive sensibility in-house with respect to the notion of translations in general. That said, it's not, I don't think, any more easy for me uh, to do a translation at Viking Penguin than it is uh, for anyone else at this table at perhaps a smaller house. Um, uh, On a more personal level... um, I had the, the pleasure of working with Peter Mayer, who was the former chairman of Penguin, and he comes from a European background. And um, he has a sort of European sensibility, and he's interested in world literature. And having worked with him for so long and being exposed to uh, uh, li- literature and translation, um, in a career context, it was an area which interested me. Uh, but also just simply the notion of, um, let's say, uh, just talking about Europe, the European novel. I've always been attracted to novels of ideas, that is, novels that, uh, I, from which I learn something. I don't think that, I think part of being a reader and part of the usefulness uh, a publisher serves with respect to publishing certain books is enabling readers to widen their perceptions um, and uh, uh, gaining more experience and hopefully more knowledge and hopefully more wisdom and so on and so forth. And that not only resides on the domestic front, but also, I think, on the international front. Uh, I mean, we always hear from uh, Europeans or from whomever that Americans are provincial, uh, only because they're not, they don't seem to be as receptive to foreign literature than, uh, let's say, Europe is to American literature. And so I think that it's important to 
not always publish what your readership demands in an obvious way, but sometimes to publish books that are unobvious, uh, literature and translation that uh, maybe the readers will find foreign, but perhaps it's a good thing that they find it foreign because once they get through it, hopefully it will help or enable them to widen their perceptions and uh, give them a greater grasp uh, of the, the larger world. And I think that's increasingly uh, important uh, with the globalization of the world. Um, and so those, those two reasons primarily uh, I have for the inter my interest in translations. I mean, at, at Penguin, the problem often is uh, I don't read, say, French, for instance. And so when I get um, a French novel, a novel in French, the immediate problem I'm faced with is, well, I have to sell this to my publisher. I have to sell this to my colleagues in marketing. Uh, how am I able to do that when people react, your colleagues react most strongly to a novel, let's say, which they've read? I mean, they can't, uh, I can't um, react passionately to this novel because I haven't read it. So I'm having to rely on third parties, oftentimes two, three, four readers uh, who do readers' reports for me, and also on, let's say, if this this person's been this novel novelist has been published in Europe or uh, in Asia, also relying on sales, publishers' records uh, in foreign countries and publicity, for instance. But the publicity is always, let's say, if it's in uh, Dutch, the pub uh, the publicity in the newspaper accounts are in Dutch. I I don't have a reader for those, so I have to somehow figure out a way to convey the passion for this author, and even if it's a well-known author in Europe, uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to be, he's going to be or she's going to be well-known enough here in America. And so there's always that chasm between uh, um, reality and what you actually want your colleagues to grasp uh, here with a, a novel. But um, I mean, I think that if you, I, many of you may have read The Times today and the, the piece on Wei Jingxing, I mean, that's a, that's a good example of, um, of the sort of traditional aspect of Penguin's publishing uh, works in translation. But that book, uh, of course, is more easy to present in-house and make the case whether you have a reader's report or not because the circumstance, it's nonfiction. The circumstances make it such that it's obvious that a book like this should be done. But if you have, uh, for instance, um, a, a, a small Dutch novel um, by... A Dutch novelist who, say, has written two or three books and have been published here in America, but the larger reading public isn't familiar with them. Well, and even those colleagues in your publishing house may not be that familiar with this novelist. How do you make the case for um, for publishing this person, especially when the argument that you'll get from, oftentimes, a lot of editors will get the argument from their publisher that if we devote time to this novelist, if this novelist uh, um, takes up a slot that is a certain number of books are published, say, a quarterly at a publishing house, that means that um, um, we perhaps won't have room for, let's say, a novel written by uh, an American for this slot, which will sell 10,000 more copies, perhaps. There's also the problem of increasingly with a, a publisher like Penguin, which is owned by... Um, a publicly held company, and there is always the pressure to get a proper return on your investment. And part of that involves cash flow and turning around 
assets, meaning books, as quickly as possible. And so if I, buy a, uh, if I want to buy a novel, and um, it, it could be by, the, you know, by a, a first-rank novelist, and I go to my publisher and say, I want to buy this, there is, I think, something goes off in this person's mind. Oh, well, it's a translation. That means it's three, four years, perhaps, into the future. That means there's a, this investment. We have monies out there. You can't turn it around as quickly, and that's always a concern, I think, in a larger publishing house. And so there's always, you, you're always confronted with ways uh, or with difficulties um, as an editor getting over these hurdles. And, but I think it's, uh, myself, it's more, uh, going forward, let's say at a large house like Penguin, it's a challenge now to, to really try to um, uh, publish both literature and nonfiction and translation. Uh, if, for instance, in the case of nonfiction, that it adds to the existing body of knowledge here in America, I don't see any reason why the nonfiction then shouldn't be published. Or if it's a novel, um, um, if it's a good read, it doesn't matter that the, the, the writer's a French novelist. But if you have a good example is uh, I'm considering now um, a French novel that is sort of in the genre of uh, crime, mystery, mystery writer. And this French novelist is, is a very good writer. And uh, he has written uh, four novels that are part of a series. And um, there's a UK publisher who has already published one of these books and has made a commitment to this novelist to publish uh, the next three. And um, so here's a book that I actually don't need a reader for, that I have in my hands. And, and you go to the publisher, but automatically there's this wall of this is a foreign writer, uh, even though the text can be very good. How do we market this? You know, how do we how do we market this to Americans who uh, have uh, ample opportunity to buy mysteries and and true crime and crime novels? And so it, it's a challenge, but it's it's a worthy challenge. And um, Penguin going forward will continue to publish uh, uh, these books that hopefully will go into a backlist and contribute ultimately, let's say, to Penguin Classics or to Penguin Twentieth Century Classics. Okay. Well, on that inspiring note, I'll pass things over to Willis Regeer. I am not very good at spontaneity, so I took the precaution of writing things down. Um, and I also took the precaution of bringing a pencil. Since I knew I was speaking forth, I was hoping that the uh, uh, people involved in commercial publishing would do me the favor of saying everything better than I was likely to. So I've been marking things out. Um, and we'll hope, I, I hope it will save you time. Um, when asked to participate on this panel, um, I tried to respond to uh, David's question, what uh, translations were you particularly proud of? Um, that's sort of like being proud of um, how, how well a second generation family member does. Um, the people I'm proud of were the translators. But one book that we did in Nebraska by Blanchot um, the space of literature, uh, I have found, has been very useful to me in thinking about literature ever since working on it. And I've started to think of translation in a Blanchot way. How would Blanchot think of translation? Um, and it occurred to me that um, being Blanchot, he would describe the space of translation not as the space of translation. It would be the spaces, 
of translation. Um, uh, scholars would explore the space between the original and the translation. Translators would explore the space that they could make within the course of the translation. And publishers would try and put as much space as they possibly could <laughs> um, between themselves and the translation. Um, but even so, some publishers do like to publish translations, and some have made their reputations by doing so. Uh, Knopf is probably the most famous instance um, before it became randomly housed. <laughs> or more recently, Farrar Archive, Arcade, Dalkey Archive, North Point, um, wonderful small presses that are really establishing their names by doing superb translations. Um, believe it or not, some publishers are readers, and as readers, they know how dependent they are on dependable translators. Um, the difference is independency can be illustrated by our comments tonight. Uh, consider something vital to all of this, food. On a panel like this at Columbia University some years ago, um, the panelists were asked, what is the hardest kind of book to translate? And one publisher said, uh, poetry. And I stratospherically suggested philosophy. Um, but another publisher trumped us all by saying, cookbooks. <laughs> um, she said, did you ever try to translate ingredients for plants that don't even exist on the side of the Pacific? Um, have you ever seen how many kinds of seeds and seasonings there are? Or how many ways there are to measure flour? Um, this opened my red eyes to what was already obvious to everyone else, that despite the theoretical urge to treat translation as a unified set of skills differentiated only by language, Different publishers do not have the same experience in dealing with different kinds of translators. Um, prior to moving to Johns Hopkins, I worked at the University of Nebraska Press for about 15 years. The two presses have very different approaches to translation. Nebraska prefers translated fiction, preferably from the major uh, European languages, but I do get nostalgic sometimes because we also translated things from very poorly known languages like Hindi and Navajo. Um, Hopkins, however, has a tradition of publishing scholarship. And here comes my pitch. <laughs> Nebraska will pay a small advance to the translator plus an ongoing royalty for as long as the translation continues to sell. Hopkins purchases translations outright for a fee. As a result um, of literary translators' willingness to share the risk of publication, Nebraska has relatively low costs. Hopkins has high costs. Nebraska's program has been steady and growing. Hopkins has been irregular or furtive. Um, the choice of genre has led to all of the other differences for a plain and simple reason. This country has an abundance of skilled people who love literature and who love it enough to translate it for love. But there is a serious shortage of people who love scholarship enough to translate its keywords. <laughs> and they will almost never translate cheaply. At the risk of hoots and hostile questions, I'll assert that the translation of scholarship is much harder than translating literature, at least for the publisher. 
<laughs> this is simply because it is harder to attract translators for scholarly translations. Uh, a scholarly translation is less likely to appeal to a translator's artistic motives. It is less likely to appeal to a translator's desire for contemporary fame or for future readers or for cash rewards. A translator of a classic text may hope for acclaim and fame, but a translator of a work of scholarship is rarely praised or remembered. Everyone here probably has a favorite translation of the Iliad or of Don Quixote. But can anyone in this very learned room name any English translator of Copernicus or Galileo, Pasteur, or Alexander von Humboldt? Fame, then, is not an allure for translators to scholarly translation, nor is the fundamental desire to be read. Translators recognize that there is a much greater chance for a novel to break out and to reach a large readership than there is for a book on Ammianus or on the history of salt. <laughs> Umberto Eco's theory of semiotics sold in the tens of thousands of copies, but those numbers are as high as they are because the name of the rose sold in the millions of copies. So here I am circling the usual subject money. Before I land on it, one last orbit for one last factor that makes translating scholarship such a difficult thing to do. Poems tend to be petite. <laughs> short stories are short. <laughs> Novels can be short, but major works of scholarship are usually long. They are expensive to publish even without the added cost of translation. Length discourages translators who have other things to do. Some do have families. Length discourages publishers who normally must worry about production costs. And when translations are involved, they must also fret about the schedules contracted with publishers of origin. These are typically 36 months. To avoid the cost and trouble of copyright negotiation, publishers and translators alike prefer works in the public domain. Ask David. <laughs> <laughs> Yet even in this vast territory, there is small room for scholarship. There are 10 different translations of the Divine Comedy currently in print in English, but none of Boccaccio's Genealogy Deorum. There are 14 different English translations of the Aeneid, but only one of Plutarch's Moralia, and none of a whole series of texts from Alexandria, Byzantium, and Rome. Chinese literature has been widely tasted, but Chinese scholarship is never on the menu. 20 years ago, most university presses were able to publish translations of scholarship because the presses received subsidies from their universities they could apply to the NEH or from ministries of culture. Very generous grants came. But in the recent past, tough times got tougher. University subsidies have shrunk to pittances or disappeared altogether. Very few university presses have subsidies anymore from their universities. Very few. 
The NEH barely survives, wheezing and gasping. And foreign nations have budget problems of their own. The French Ministry of Culture, for example, has been forced to reduce its typical support to less than a third of the translation's cost, and funds from Italy have vanished. This meager environment is something like Kafka's home in Prague. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing that so much could come from something so small. Um, it will be more amazing still if translations of scholarship can maintain even the modest levels of recent years. Until and unless sources of funds appear or reappear, translators may have little choice but to try fiction or to translate for the love of it. But if translation budgets shrink tight and translators must translate for the love of it, then choice reemerges, and a case can be made, after all, for the love of scholarly translation. I'll mention three factors. Fame, future readers, and money. <laughs> no less a judge than Montaigne declared that the greatest literary masterpiece of the uh, French of the French of his generation was Amiot's translation of Plutarch. Speaking of Plutarch, Dryden's translation of Plutarch's lives remains the standard translation, even now. And money? Though Nebraska translated novel after novel after novel and was able to sell sometimes as many as two or three thousand copies, the greatest success Nebraska had was a translation of Nietzsche's Human All Too Human, which sells about 1,500 copies a year and has ever since it was published. Finally, where's the money coming from? The rich schools, Harvard, Princeton. Those schools have more money in some of their departments than university presses get from their universities. We are now approaching those departments to help support translation costs. And one of the most exciting translation projects I have ever been involved with is being funded through the help of Harvard University through a, an institute called the Longfellow Institute of American Literature, which is devoted to the translation of American literatures written in languages other than English. We are intending to translate American literature originally written in Spanish, a great amount of literature written in French, some in Arabic, some in Welsh, vast amounts of it in Yiddish. So we expect Ed Hopkins to be uh, involved in translation for the rest of my career. Um, thank you for your attention. Well. I think that gives I think that gives Carol a little bit of grist for her mill as, as respondent. Well, and I'm hoping I will, it's going to give the audience a little bit of grist as well. I will turn to Carol, who's been charged not with preparing remarks, but simply listening to these fun folk and and giving a translator's perspective on on it all. Well, and you can see that she's. Well, I I'm going to turn it over to the audience, but if, the first thing uh, <laughs> the first thing, of course, I have to say, since there are so many fine translators in the audience, is that. Um, I think that many of us probably bristled a little bit at the <laughs> remark that um, translators are not authors and trans authors should be translators and, and translators aren't authors. Um, 
there are many, many fine translators who are beautiful writers and who are willing to work on translations for the love of it. Um, not that I think we should be working on it purely for the love of it, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, we discussed earlier that um, many of these editors have had horror stories and that is also a deterrent to publishing translations. They've worked with um, seasoned translators and they've had results that they've gotten in manuscripts that had to be rewritten. This, is, this came as a surprise to me because I, I, um, I, don't, I don't know, and I'm not blaming them because I know that, but I, I just wonder whether there couldn't be um, the process of doing a translation generally requires turning in a sample, and I just wonder whether there couldn't be more care. The more disasters that happen, the more there is a deterrent to doing translations, so none of us want to see that. And I think that we as translators certainly have the responsibility to make sure that never happens or that we're willing to rework or that we're willing to do whatever it takes. But there also has to be compatibility, of course, between the, the, the the translator in the book, and it's possible that in some of these instances um, there weren't, there wasn't. Um, let's see, so many things. Uh, the other thing I was thinking was that um, when you were talking about the translator's fees and royalties, um, there's an, a long-standing debate between translators and publishers about royalties, about, about copyright, and about the fees. And I find often the, the press will expect the translator to be the author when it comes to doing the unpleasant work, <laughs> but, but you're not the author when it comes to getting a royalty or to having the copyright. That's not universally true, and it, it tends to be more true, perhaps, with the university presses. But I also find, I, I used to do, I for several years was a pu did publicity, and I find that um, the press tends to cut the translator out of the process, that whereas the author, I mean, sometimes the author is a little cut out of the process too, but if the author were in this country saying, what's going to happen with the book, what's, you know, where are you sending it, uh, how many copies have you sent out, um, that would be welcome or... It, it would have an effect on the, on the um, it might have an effect on sales, would have an effect on publicity. The translator tends to be cut out of that process. And perhaps uh, by having a, a small royalty, you're sort of brought into the process and you have a little bit of an incentive. Um, so I think that's something that's worth militating for. Um, let's see. I, I also wonder whether it's true that there's such a, a lack of translators who'd be willing to do scholarly translations because I know so many people who want to get into translation and a book is a good credit whether it's scholarly or, or, um, or fiction. Um, and I think that there might be more people out there that would be willing to undertake um, nonfiction simply to have the credit. And, for its own joys as well. I mean, I've done a lot of nonfiction, and I think it has great joy. It's not, I don't believe that always <coughs> translating fiction is, um, is the only translation worth doing. Um, let's see. 
that well, let's, really let's open it up. Well, let's, yeah, <laughs> let's, 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 we've, we've now had a, about an hour of us up here, 45 minutes of us up here throwing some views out there. And I, I, since I see a lot of familiar faces in this audience, I know I have opinions about these things. Uh, you know, I open up the floor for comments, questions, uh, really dialogue with this group of editors and, and, and translators. about translations <laughs> is that I think a translator is a writer who happens to translate. And that's really, you know, that what you want in a translator is somebody who has writerly ambitions. They, they may be a writer monkey, and this is the way in which they can, you know, but you want that because, I, you know, especially in fiction, you need, as, you know, as Sarah says, the voice, and that voice is, a, you know, that's a, a writer's voice. Right. It may not even be the original writer's voice. So I didn't mean to, you know, malign anybody. <laughs> but there's certainly, I mean, one thing that came up was this notion of the absence of the author, that when you do a translation, especially a translation of a work of fiction, you don't have the author to do publicity. And on the other hand, the translator is a cost. And I think what Carol is trying to say, and what I, under my translator's hat, I would try to say as well, is that the translator is there not just as a cost, but also as somebody who has recreated this work in English and who is interested in being used as an asset. And I, we rarely see that asset being taken advantage of, although under the auspices of World in Translation Month, for example, there are translator readings being organized. I see Linda Coverdale who's doing one downtown later this week. But not as much of that gets done as I think could be done. And my own limited experience with doing readings as a translator is that audiences find it fascinating. Audiences who haven't ever thought about translation before are fascinated with this idea that, wait a minute, you know, there's sort of a double work here. And, and I would throw that out to the editorial group here to, to think about that a little bit more. The translators can be an asset in this process and not just a net cost. Um, No, no guarantee. No guarantee at all. I've had two examples in my career where a translator has brought a project to me that um, we were either contemplating doing the book or we had already signed the um, project with another translator. Um, and it's a heartbreaking situation when someone has gone and done a completed translation that they can never publish until copyright runs out. So Carol's um, op uh, way of proceeding is exactly right. You should do a, a, a sample. Uh, don't do the complete work by any means until, uh, unless you just love it so much that you want to have your own version. But if you want to publish it, um, then, you should, then you should do a sample and try and find a publisher first. Um, and if I could use this example to respond to Carol, there are two, two reasons that I think that scholarly translation is more difficult. Um, one is that I get very few offers from translators for scholarly works. They don't come to me with the scholarly work. I get lots of people who have translated other things who want, who want to publish that. Um, so just in terms of the translating community, translating for love, they're not coming with scholarly work. That's one sign. The other is that when I deal with translators who are going to do scholarly work, they respect other translators so much 
they don't want to do scholarly work because then they have to go find those prior translations in the footnotes. And if the book is 600 pages long and it has, um, it cites maybe 2,000 sources, the uh, translator often feels obliged, obliged to find out if, how many of those things have been translated in English and then cite the original translations. Well, it's a huge yeah, and, and worse that's, still, that's if it's a French book, actually. if there's a translation from German into French into a French, exactly. in a French book, you can get into real trouble translating the French translation of the German into English. I mean, all of a sudden you start playing telephone and you can find some things that are very strange. And that is just an absolute, you sort of have to take care of that, and that is even worse because if you're in America trying to find German originals cited in, in a French book, French citation practice is, until recently, was very erratic, and even now is less, <laughs> well, until recently it wasn't standard to cite all works used in a, in a French work, and even now it's not as long-standing a tradition. I mean, that can add, that can easily double the total time a translation takes, so that's certainly a major issue. Yeah. I find that's usually a contractual <laughs> obligation, <laughs> not, uh, yeah, but uh, it's, of course, necessary. I appreciate the point that some of you have made about uh, translations not being too literal and hoping that you have someone who has the right of it, um, expertise. And, and the situation that I'm going to raise is one of poetry, which is a particular case in itself. Uh, the first time that I used a translation of Baudelaire's Hector de Mare in a comparative literature class, maybe about 20 years ago, and one of the few, or maybe the only at that time, available translation uh, in a price range that the students could afford was a translation by Edna St. Vincent Millay. My first reaction would be naive. How wonderful, I'll have a poet translating another poet. Little did I realize that she really was using her poetic facilities and not her translating facilities. She translated, she wrote poems about a subject that was vaguely similar to poetry. <laughs> 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 Which is often an issue, obviously, in poetry translating. She called it Les Fleurs du Bien or something? <laughs> 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 Les Fleurs du Pas si mal que ça. Until very recently, uh, I was uh, obliged by the uh, original management of the, of the museum to try to either make a profit or break even on what we do. And we do orient ourselves principally on scholarly works, although we're also involved with, uh, with memoirs too. Um, as of uh, this past fall, I am told that the old rules no longer apply, and I am indeed allowed to lose money. But uh, the amount of, uh, and, and I should say that as a general rule, we do not publish ourselves. There are exceptions. Uh, largely, what we do is to see collaborating publishers. And uh, I've done it with, uh, and have some projects in the works with several of the people up here, and have submitted to, uh, to others here. Uh, so uh, I can lose a little bit of money. The monies that I can lose, however, are private monies, although this, the, the institution itself is a government institution, and I am a federal employee, 
Um, and I have yet uh, to learn what my budget for next year is going to be. The amounts of money are relatively small, but any of you who uh, are um, who feel very, very confident uh, in, in dealing with uh, all of the languages in which the literature of the Holocaust has been written, both scholarly, a lot of that is, is German and Russian and, and East and West European languages, um, and, and memoirs, uh, I would certainly be uh, interested to see uh, your, your CV and perhaps a, a, a sample with the understanding that the amounts of money, again, that I can put into any proposition, because every time I offer something to one of, one of these folks, uh, they will say, well, who's going to pay for the translation? Um, I, can put a, I can put some uh, money into that now. So uh, any, if you want to see me afterwards, I, have, I didn't bring enough uh, business card. <laughs> seems to undermine the whole you know, sort of development in the past 20 years of developing a professional translation as a professional field and sort of fielding a bunch of professional translators who are more than just dilettantes with uh, you know, independent incomes. Many of the translators uh, in this room and, and many translators who aren't in this room work um, not part-time but full-time as translators. That is their profession and they do support themselves and their families on the money for the translation. It's not something you know ad hoc or something that they do in spare time, and they're not all uh, certainly academic translators who work only when they're on sabbatical or in the summer. Uh, and I and I think more you know a greater awareness of this fact would be beneficial to both parties of, of why translators may be making decisions that they do or uh, presented the requests or the demands that they do, uh, and it allows them you know sort of. Any comments the, the from other the question, I had also had a question, uh, which is why necessarily translations are so much more expensive uh, than any ordinary translation. Again, rather, let's say publishing a book from the standard author one day. Presumably, the royalties would be paying or buying for a manuscript uh, are not part of the equation at this point. You're, you're paying foreign writers, which presumably would be far less than you have to pay for a domestic author. 
No, I think, um, well, just several things. I, I think for your first point, I think all of us, you know, have said pretty much the reason, the reason for our doing this at all is precisely this hope of opening up a conversation, a wider conversation with Europe, but also elsewhere. So I think that has to be the guiding motivation for everyone who does this admittedly hard thing. Um, and just just a comment about your second point. I, I think, yes, I think it would be very good if we could all sort of work out a kind of professional group of translators whose work this is, because I think the misunderstanding is on every side, where everyone believes, or some people still believe, that if you happen to know a foreign language, then you can be a translator. You know, whereas, as we know, it's a much more complicated and sophisticated process, and it would be good to understand that on all sides to begin with. Um, finally, the costs. The reason it's more expensive, aside from the mm -hmm. fact that you know, if you publish a longer book and you translate a longer book, that's more expensive than a shorter book. I mean, that's obvious, right? Number of pages. But you know, these are costs that are not fitted into anywhere else. They're in addition to what you might pay as an advance to a writer. Let's say you pay an advance to an American writer, that's it. That's what you then have to earn out. If you do it to a writer in translation, there's that advance, and then you have to pay for the translation, which is not understood as part of that. So every translated book begins with this handicap, just to begin with. It's going to be more expensive by definition. And I think the days where you could just sort of pick up foreign books, you know, and it was Dr. Zhivago or it was whatever, and you got them for a song, you know. I mean, that we're not in that world anymore, and I think the prices do matter. But foreign rights for many foreign books are, you know, like one or two thousand dollars. I mean, the minimum compared to some, I mean, unless they're big name books, they seem to be minimal compared to the prices. I mean, we're seeing, you know, six, seven figure fees paid to American. Well, you're reading about that in the newspapers, but that's not, you know, that's a bunch of books. That's not the majority of books. At least five figures. Though. Yeah, five figures. <laughs> You're right, but I think there you come up. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yes. There you come up against you know the particular limitations of your American editorial population. I mean, there are languages we don't know. But why is it so? Here at Penn, I chaired the committee for several years. We publish a handbook on literary translation. Which of which we have copies in the back, by the way. There, there are extra copies of the handbook in the. But nothing can really replace. But I mean, I why think you're. Why is it so hard to find good readers? Why do you have so much trouble finding well, good readers? Well, I don't. I mean, I think for those of us, I think for us, we'd like to be able to read it ourselves, you know. And sometimes I'll wait till something is translated into French or German, and then I can read it, you know, rather than. How many Swedish novels do you read that way? They're translated. Well, there's there are quite a few actually that get translated into German. I did yeah. a series called Modern Scandinavian Literature and Translation. <laughs> and we had to close it because oh, this, this, uh, <laughs> that, that was a perfect case of the publisher publishing for love yeah. mm -hmm. because the um, sales of those books, they started very well. The first book was by um, Adia Trudeau-Murk and uh, sold 2,000 copies in cloth of the first book in the series. And that was its glory days. As soon as we started publishing other things, the, it began to go very rapidly since. And our salesman um, hated
hated to see the books on the catalog because they knew they couldn't sell them. But uh, just to speak to that issue, I mean, one does wonder why can't the the accounting be sort of drawn up differently um, if if American books are bought at considerably higher advances. Um, why can't and recently I had an experience where uh, I was asked to translate a book. I asked for a royalty on the paperback. I was in touch with the original publisher who said that there was a, a royalty was being allotted to me in their contract with the, with the American publisher for, for me to receive a royalty, but the American publisher argued that they couldn't give me the royalty, that they would have to have a, a different type of contract with the original publisher. Um, on the paperback, so it was just sort of lying. <laughs> um, Not and in the book business. It's and it's. But try, I think you know just to, one thing about the expenses, though. I think if you bear in mind, I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think of several books that I've agreed to publish where, let's say, we paid the foreign publisher. $7,500, not an exorbitant amount, but the translation is going to cost close to 20 What translation costs close to 20 yeah. Never. <laughs> Trust me on this one. Um, <laughs> what? Trust me. I've uh, never. I see that Mitch has a comment in the. When the discussion starts to get raucous like this, it's like we're all sort of angry at the reading public, but they're not here. What are some of the barriers that you experienced when you were trying to bring foreign literature and foreign uh, history, political arguments, and so on over to America? I've had experiences publishing foreign works from uh, English-speaking countries that you now translate here to the marketplace. And it's, uh, it's sometimes very perplexing. And I'm just curious to hear some of your experiences in that regard. What, where do you find the barriers? And just if I can amplify on the question a little bit, because it's something that I noted down during the presentations, what is it that, that is making, one of you commented about the fact that, that there are already many very good books in English and that this is a barrier to the entry of foreign books, but of course it's also a barrier to the entry of new English language <laughs> authors. And what makes translations seem more difficult to break out when in some cases they already have strong reviews behind them in foreign countries? than new American authors? What makes the translation seem that much more difficult to give a place in the landscape than, than a foreign book? I don't, I don't think it's, you know, if you're talking about a new American book, let's say a first-time novel in either case, I'm not sure that it is more difficult. I mean, what, what's difficult is getting the translation right, because if the translation isn't right, then you just sink the book, and you might as well, you might as well forget it. But if, assuming there's a really good translation, I think it's difficult for both kinds of books to have any kind of audience. It's very tough now. Yeah, I would say uh, The Chains. <laughs> right, that too. And they're independent stores that used to take books, that used to take translations, and keep them around for a while, because they knew that so-and-so was off on vacation but would be back in three months. <laughs> and he'd love this new novel by Zoe Valdez. <laughs> but The Chains, if it does, you know, if it's not turning over within a matter of three weeks, I'm getting books back on pub date. Wow. <laughs> I'm getting returns on pub date. But you would say this is true of American novels, too. I would, This is indeed. not, yeah. you know. But, I mean, that's, you know. Jacob? Well, the, the absence of the authors you were referring to earlier also highlights uh, 
after the publicity department will give up on yeah. that book. I mean, it's happening. Because publicity department, you only have a certain amount of time for the whole list in the season. And so it hurts not to have and if you said, boy, but I have this dashing, charismatic translator, translator. would that? <laughs> well, in all seriousness, I mean, are publicity departments even ready to entertain the notion that a translator does have some publicity value or just not at all? It's not the author. It's yeah. not the author. Yeah. And, and I thought most translators don't want It's the author of the translation. Right. There's a question in the back. A year's worth of translation. I wanted to go back to Emily's question earlier, which was about she sort of made a gesture towards producing a book as a package and already translating books. To which she responded, as I've heard, that one does samples because one does not devote oneself to a 400 page novel only to find that it's been translated or this or that or no one wants it. Um, by the same token, if someone arrives with a novel that's translated or a work of fiction, then you can read it. You, I mean, what you I mean, you don't have to rely on readers' reports and do this and that. You could take it home over the weekend. Um, Sarah, you could take it home over the weekend if it wasn't healthy and read it and know whether you like this as a book. And so, wouldn't that? I mean, maybe that's just as smart an approach in a way, um, especially if the translator has a relationship with the writer or the writer. That's, that's a big, those are two big caveats you threw in there at the end. Yeah. If you've got a situation where you have a relationship with the author, and furthermore, you actually know that the author has talked to his or her publisher and that they understand what's going on, because sometimes authors will talk to translators and say, oh, that's wonderful, you're working on my book, but meanwhile, the foreign rights manager at the publishing house is selling rights to somebody else, and the author doesn't find out until the rights are sold, and sometimes some authors are very diligent about this, but others, they talked to some translator six months ago, now they find out the rights are sold, do they get back in touch with the translator and tell the translator that? Not necessarily. So, so that can be a very slippery slope. Obviously, public domain things, sure, you can go ahead and invest as much time up front as you want. As somebody who dealt with an awful lot of, of beginning translators, that is, and I define those as people who have not yet published a book, basically, um, you've got to be very careful about, a, about working on something with the idea that that something you're working on is likely to be published someday. It's all well and good to work on materials to show to publishers to get into this mix to get other projects that the publishers have already commissioned, but to try and select a book as a beginning translator to cover all the right spaces and then try to get it published is, the odds are just very strongly against you and you need to go into that process understanding that you are probably doing something more for your own learning experience and that if it gets published that's a very nice sort of bonus but simply not likely to happen. There are relatively few stories of beginning translators making that happen. Very different case if you're, say, Gregory Labasa, who's identified an important new Portuguese novel and goes to editors that he knows already. So, and he's having place in that anyway. So, so I think that's something very important for beginning translators to keep in mind, that it's fine to do this kind of work up front, but don't expect that that's going to be the project that you actually get published someday. Well, I mean, I mean, that's, that's something that seems to happen, is where all of a sudden, since there aren't agents representing translators, suddenly the translator's shopping around the book 
I see somebody with personal experience who wants to comment. SJ, did you have something you wanted to say? I'm listening to you, all three of you, and I'm getting, uh, all four of you, and I'm getting a repeated sense that you're flying blind. And what I want to tell you is, you don't have to fly blind. Um, you have a room full of resources right here. Um, if you work with a translator, they do a good job. Um, they are probably very familiar with the national literature that they work out of. They probably read novels passionately within that literature. They probably have very strong ideas about what they would like to translate. And they would probably be good at translating these books that they'd like to translate, that they want to translate. Um, but somehow this doesn't seem to happen. I mean, your example of Gregory Lovasa, well, Greg, it's not happening for Gregory yeah. Lovasa. Uh, William Weaver, one of the most distinguished translators of the library of the century, told a friend of mine that he had never successfully initiated a project. Um, never. So I guess that's what I would throw back to, to <laughs> beginning <laughs> translators is that. But I would say that the reverse yeah. is what doesn't happen. It's that if William Weaver reads that book and tries to make right. the phone calls or Gregory, right. and part of that is two different notions of time. And this is something where I feel like as somebody who I still think of myself as an outsider from publishing, it was very striking to me as a translator who then got into this. As a translator, I thought of a French book published well, I would say after 1980 is relatively contemporary French fiction because French fiction, after all, goes through these sort of cycles and post-1980 was definitely after the last sort of major cycle. In publishing terms, my good gracious, a book from 1995, it's been around the mill. If it was a book that people thought of in France as a saleable property, it was pushed at Frankfurt, it was pushed through foreign rights managers toward the American publishing community, and it's old news. It's really, it's in a different category from this year's books, which have some, which potentially have some urgency behind them, so translators are functioning in one sense of time, where there's a fairly broad notion of what is current literature. Publishers tend to be fo functioning in a very accelerated sense of time, and from what I know anecdotally about American publishing, a book that's already published is ancient history. I mean, everybody's read it in manuscript 14 months ago, if they were anybody, and, and or 18 months ago, or, or six months ago, if it was rushed. So that so that these senses of time are, are really like this. I mean, there, there are really it's really two rather skew worlds, and to the extent that translators hit upon projects that are commercial usually that are, that are viable in the United States, usually there are agents and rights issues attached that make it very difficult for the translator to be the initiator. I would guess, though, that half of the university press translations are, are translator-initiated. Mm -hmm. Well, that, yeah, can you speak a little bit, can you speak a little bit more to, about that and especially what you were doing in Nebraska? Well, uh, easily half in Nebraska were, were supported and uh, originally suggested by the translators. Um, but University of Georgia Press, um, I think they could be approached very easily. Um, Certainly Northwestern University Press is very open to translator submissions. Well, just so that you guys know here and there, I'll <laughs> tell you about a book um, that I fell in love with this work. I contacted the person who arrived. They stipulated no university presses. They thought that it was a significant novel, as did I, and 
success story of along really. those lines. Really <laughs> I mean, I, I've never initiated a project. I was interested in a project and pursued it with the original publisher and found that they were in the process of selling it and was able to get the job translating it. But I think it's pretty unusual for translators, even though we'd like to do that to initiate projects, um, it doesn't seem to as if editors are very receptive. And I'm just Except academic publishers of professors. So that's what which which also right. means well, that no, you're not... Talk, aren't most of the well, you're talking, talking about, about fiction translation. A, fair, a large number. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's a very different thing. There's yes, a lot it's more opportunity for an academic to come in your field and say this. But those same people don't go... To the trade houses. To the trade houses. But the difference I mean, between those people, publishers people is also... People go to Northwestern for $500 rather than right. go to Catbird for $4,000. Although at Penguin... Uh, although at Penguin, for Penguin Classics, as I was saying earlier, not in this room, but we do have a lot of academics who come to us proposing uh, uh, works for translation. Of course, most of them, if not all of them, are in the public domain. So that happens a lot uh, at Penguin. But I know, I realize what you're saying, it's not quite, you know, uh, front list. Uh, I do want to throw in another pitch for that. I get to some of these questions, but, but another pitch for the handbook, because a lot of these issues are addressed fairly thoroughly in the handbook, and I think it helps avoid some of these confusions. The handbook also has a model contract, which is another issue that I wasn't really intending to address at this panel, but is another source of tension and, and problems between editors and translators, especially when the, trans, when the contract simply doesn't specify enough, and then an issue comes up that has not been spelled out in the contract, and there's nothing to go by. So, so I would urge people interested in further information about some of these rights and contracts issues to, to grab copies of the handbook that are, that are there in the back. Do now, you, further. Uh, publishers want to comment on that? I fear I'm seeing a nod, a shaking of the head. My experience has been that when, when publishers become aware of it, they have nothing against it. They may not agree to every single provision in it, but it's a useful, it's a real contract. I mean, it's written in proper contract language, and there's nothing obliging a publisher to use every single clause in it, but it's a useful starting point for both sides. And it sets up the issues that both sides need to be thinking about. Because to me, a contract is about reaching an agreement. It's not about who can do what to whom. And you want to have some sense of what the issues are. What do we have to worry about? What could come up that we haven't thought about today that might be a problem? And I think of that model contract as a lot of accumulated wisdom. Here are some potential problems that you may not be thinking of today, but let's spell out what we're going to do if they, if they come up. Now, I have a lot of hands. Joan, you had a...
There are some might makes right issues in such cases because yeah. a contract is all well and good and it can be in paper. A contract can be violated. I mean, no matter what the provisions say, the book gets published and now it's a fight. And there have been other fights between authors and translators over what's been done with the work. The biggest piece of advice I give to authors, and I don't know if Tina Nunnally had been, had really sat down face to face with Peter Hogg with a draft of her translation, my experience is, in my own personal experience, is sitting down with a foreign language author with a draft which a, with a bunch of questions and actually going through it when it's a living author makes an enormous difference because suddenly this author, who maybe has some English, who maybe has some opinions, realizes that you know his or her book better you know, than the author does. You, you've lived with it in a way that the author never had to. The author did not have to agonize over the exact meaning of every single word that the author chose to use, where the, you know, I as translator have to agonize over every bloody word and how they're working in phrases, and and, and no it's a it's a, it's a kind of knowledge that the author that most authors tend to respect. When they see that depth of knowledge, they tend to respect it. Most of the horror stories I've heard have been stories where author and translator had no contact, and author gets often galley proofs. Often the publisher sends to the author the original author, galley proofs in English, saying, well, you have three weeks to read this, make any comments, send it back, we're in a big hurry. And sometimes the author sees things that horrify, you know, horrify her. My God, what's been done to my book? Um, in the case of Peter Hoog, I'm not exactly sure what the communication was, but I saw plenty of cases where I did know exactly who had seen what at what stage, and where typically it was author shock seeing the manuscript all at once, no explanation of how it had come to be. Of course, a translation, even if it's a very good translation, is not going to correspond exactly with the original, and no introduction of that translation. The author and the translation had not been properly introduced. It had just been sort of dumped on the author. Um, and it's something that I just urge translators to do. If you have any chance at all to have a face-to-face -face meeting with your author prior to a book... Huh? Well, that's a. I, he, I, I have not found that to be typical. All I can say is that French authors, which is my expertise, who do not have a reputation for being the easiest people in the world, <laughs> tend to be receptive when they are approached earlier in the process with questions. They tend to be very prickly when they get what they perceive anyway as a fait accompli late in the process. 
Well, Somewhat. Well, I think the, the, tra the translator the should. German, Sometimes. Yeah. But, I mean, there's faxes. I mean, there's. It's, it helps enormously. I, I find face-to-face -face meetings enormously helpful. That's got to be an exceptional thing. contract with Peter Hoeg. I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't yeah. allow the author final say ever. Well, if they have no English, I mean, no, if they have some basis, yeah. perhaps, that would, you know, consultation, agreement, and so forth. But I would never give the author final. But the fact is, an author who's received several hundred thousand dollars versus a translator who's received, say, $10,000, there is going to be an imbalance in terms of the publisher's dealings that's just inevitable, yeah, whatever's in the translator. about that. I mean, you, you wouldn't want to strong arm an author, an author or sort of force something down their throat. I mean, if the author knows any English, it's, it's not just a courtesy. It's kind of an obligation to... To consult the author. Yeah. Well, to sure. show it and to, Well, you know. the, Peter, the Peter Hoeg was a pretty special well, case. And, and there was a... There's actually a nice summary article that's been written about it. <coughs> yes, right. Um, but in the case of Peter Hoeg, which was a rather unusual case, which is a very large advance for a foreign book, it's different than in a case where it's, yeah. where it's sort of a regular project. Um, and it's a complicated... Uh, we could spend a whole panel discussion on that particular case, actually. And there's a good, I was saying, there's a good summary article of sort of what happened in that case that was published in. If people are interested, they can call me at home. I can get the site at home. But there, when you'll remember. Well, I have a, it's, it's, a pub, it's a translation journal. Actually, it's Exchanges, which is a journal done out of the University of Iowa, published a nice summary of sort of what had happened. And, and a young translator interviewed several of the principals and, and got a pretty, I think, accurate. Hmm. There's another problem with Scandinavian contracts, though. Um, it's not unusual for the heirs of the original author to insist upon reading the translation. And that is a definite recipe for misery. <laughs> yes. Reading is Oh, but you can't. You just can't. You can't. I think it's better. It's better to leave it as informal as possible. But it it is yet another another task that anybody who's translating or publishing a translation has to do, which is, you know, mediate or the translator writes long letters with you know queries or you know it's a whole, it's yet another dimension to it. And once again, I mean, an author who has some English can be a resource. I mean, if you use if, if brought into the process as a resource, that author can be a resource. If, if confronted with a translation at the end, that author can be a nightmare. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I perceived part of my job when I was, when I was doing the, the French Publishers Agency to try to integrate authors into that process rather than fight with them at the end of the process to the extent also, I, I always send lists yeah. of queries to authors you know, when, before I finish the translation. And I think that it's true, it brings them into the process. I haven't had any resistance. What did you have? Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the process of, uh, just the mechanics of selling in the American market, uh, because I wanted to ask some questions, and it just also interested me to have some of your opinion. Uh, the, the experience I've had is, is really in general trade publishing, and it's been mainly uh, finding books from the American market for international but occasionally I have uh, tried to introduce a foreign uh, book uh, 
is just, uh, I think that the international publishers in general are not at all as sophisticated about presenting their books in the American markets uh, as people think they are. I think that if uh, they're, they're just, there's an enormous amount of work I think that could be done uh, for translators to be in touch sometimes with the international publishers, whether it's with the foreign rights person in the publishing house, whether it's with editors, whether it's with the houses through writers, but all of this, because the first question that a foreign publisher always asks, I think, is should we do a sample? Mm -hmm. Should English? Should this happen? And what can sometimes happen among the trade publishers uh, abroad that have a little uh, extra money is a local person will be hired to do an absolutely unreadable yeah. partial, yeah. which is then yep. presented by the foreign rights person to the American publishers in Frankfurt or in some other context. So there's a lot of, 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 kind of emphasis that can be sort of directed internationally. The other thing is, too, that, that I think agents, I mean, if you think about the general trade publishers in America, and if, just even a sampling here, how, what proportion of your books come in from agents? Robert, Sarah, half. Tim. Slightly under half, yeah. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. So involving also agents is a sort of interesting thing. Now, I know agents... Money. <laughs> no, but people do this. No, there's well, no Sometimes question. they do. Yeah. But sometimes they do. And sort of more importantly, I think that, that with the, the, the right approach, an agent may secretly know another language. This happens. I mean, they try not to ever let anyone know that they speak anything but English, and ideally sort of numerical English. That, but they do know It's a very interesting match between what you're just saying and the question from the back of the room about beginning translators, and it's something that had never really occurred to me in that direct form before. It is very true that European publishers often commission sample translations of current works from local people that are just awful versions. And
literary marketplace, which is available in any library, who the foreign rights manager is, and you write to the foreign rights manager with a sample and a little bit of an explanation of your interest, and maybe even follow up with an international phone call, which is getting cheaper nowadays. Um, amazing things can happen, and especially European publishing is awfully personality driven. If, if you sort of become somebody they're a little bit aware of, and they develop some faith that you can do what you're talking about, that is certainly a way to get a foot in the door. The agenting side of it, I'm, I'm less up to. I think yeah. the agents are only going to get involved in those occasional books where there's some honest-to-goodness money to be made. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to interest agents on an ongoing basis in translations. I do think it's possible to get agents involved not so infrequently. That is to say, they could be stepping in a little bit more often. But there are a fair number of agents who are involved in translation in some way or another. Um, uh, God, one of them in this room, and, and you know, I, I, I think that does still exist. It's a woman in the, in the very back there. Well, I have a question. I'm a bilingual teacher, and I was wondering what kind of market is there for translating children's literature? Somebody feel? We don't know. I don't think we have anybody up here with real specific expertise in, in children's books. Well. <laughs> well, I've translated a number of them. I don't know how they've done. Um, I mean, certainly, there are translations of children's books that are published, but children's book publishing—I mean, that's one angle. I must say that I did not find an editor to cover, and, and it's tough for us to talk about that because it's a very separate, separate market. Um, you approach Scholastic for that, among others, but but all of the major presses have. I tried to buy a German children's book once, and it was about ducks. <laughs> And then at one point, one of the ducks has a cigarette hanging out of the corner of its mouth. <laughs> ah, those cultural And the librarians yeah, in this country, well. which control, really, children's books, have an enormous like amount of influence. You know, one look at that cigarette. <laughs> that. I'm going to take one last question, and then I'm going to suggest that we break up and... and Well, on that rather hopeful note, I'm going to thank you all for coming, and uh, you know, let's continue this dialogue. Thank you.